Welcome back to Food Safety EDU. This is Mr. F. You know, I was trying to get this thing out uh, in December when I recorded it. And, of course, uh, uh, stuff happened. So today I'm trying to get this one up and out and, and realize that uh, the Annex 4 that I was trying to post, and I kept telling, I kept saying it was... Uh, FDA food code, Annex 4, FDA food code, Annex 4. And then I go to the FDA food code and I go to Annex 4. And similar stuff, but it had nothing to do with what this was. And, and what I did was I confused myself and I found this. This is this is the HACCP, the regulator's manual for HACCP, okay? Managing food safety, a regulator's manual for applying HACCP principles uh, and this is from 2006, and it's it's a good book, a, a good um, uh, reference material. So I'll put the link in the show notes below, and there's a link on my resource page on the podcast website. So when you go to the podcast website, there's multiple pages with lots of videos and lots of resource information in, on each page, and I keep uh, updating that. And on the podcasts, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, we we learn by doing, and and we we get better as we go. So anyway, I'm gonna put this in the show notes where I should be putting a whole bunch of other information, so that you can actually access it when you want to on your phone while you're listening. So uh, anyway, I'll get that there. <clears throat> um, so this is good. This is Annex 4 of the HACCP manual for regulators. And then there's another HACCP manual for uh, just operators, people that are operating you know, food service in the retail um, setting. And I'll put that link as well. And that way you have both and you can access both. But this one is Annex 4 for the regulators. And these are questions that the regulators can use if they want to in order to uh, guide them in your inspection when the time comes. All right, so this is March 23rd, 2020. We're in the middle of the coronavirus, um, I don't want to say lockdowns, but uh, we're, we're, uh, everybody is staying in place. And I ask that everybody do that as best as possible. You know, go to the grocery store if you have to, uh, be kind to your neighbors, stay a safe distance apart. If you go to the park, say a safe distance apart from each other. Um, we don't need to be. And, and you know, my students and, and the other young people who, you know, if they happen to listen to this, even though you're strong, if you carry the stupid thing and then you go see someone else and you touch them or you cough on them or you sneeze on them or whatever, it could kill that other person. So even though you don't care about yourself, you need to care about the potential of the spread. This thing is bad, okay? So please take that into consideration and keep away from everybody. All right, thanks very much. Jeff Feldman, Food Safety EDU, and we'll get through this together. Okay, welcome back. This is Jeff Feldman, Food Safety EDU. Um, Annex 4 are food safety questions for the inspectors. Uh, it's not meant for the... Um, operators or the restaurant owners to go over it although I give it to you now because it's an important thing so you know what they're looking for when they walk in the door okay so in your flow of food and receiving 
the first one is, is, is the food from an approved source? So how do you know where you're getting your food from? And number two is how do they verify that their food is from an approved source? We can't just go fishing. We can't pick it out of somebody's, uh, you know, pickup truck. We have to purchase everything from that approved source. So they want to know when they're walking in the door um, and they're going off of their inspection sheet, which I'll go over the inspection, the Conference for Food Protection uh, Form 3-Alpha or 3-A. I have a link on the podcast website that, you know, you can download it. And then when you go to your different jurisdictions, like in California, if you go to Napa County, their inspection sheet may be a little bit different than the Sonoma County inspection sheet. Now, California came up with an overall general inspection sheet, but each county might tweak it a little bit depending on what their focus is. Um, just like in the military, just like any other place, you can always go more, you can always be stronger, but you can't go less, right? Okay, so in the receiving, is there food from an approved source? How do they verify that their food is from an approved source? How do they know if the food is at the proper temperature upon receipt? So these questions the inspector will ask, and then the operator, the chef, the owner of the restaurant, they're supposed to answer these things. What kind of refusal policy do they have? So if a bunch of lettuce comes in, it's all wilty and moldy, do they actually refuse it or do they accept it and then and then try and pawn it off or serve it? And that would be wrong. Do they keep receiving logs? Now, receiving logs are not required, but if we are doing active managerial control or if we are actually running HACCP, Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point, then there are receiving logs. And it's times and whoever the receiver is and that they calibrated their thermometer properly and they're using the thermometer and they're cleaning and sanitizing the thermometer between uses, you know, these kind of things. So with logs and logging and clipboards and paperwork, you can actually prove, well, of course, people will just, uh, you know, scribble in numbers. But if you're actually training and keeping your people on track and, and keeping them and teaching and training them that it's the right thing to do then you're actually following following proper procedures and you have uh, clipboards and logs and people actually fill them out properly and you keep them for an amount of time so that they can be inspected uh, by whoever needs to inspect them like the health department or a third-party company that comes in to do a, an audit for you okay how do you verify the source of shellfish? Well, the shellfish comes from an approved source, and with the shellfish comes that shell stock identification tag. And it shows when and where and the date, well, that's when, the shellfish were harvested from the water. And the company is from the approved list of companies and if anything were to go wrong, if there were any viruses in the shellfish that gets into the customers or there's any other uh, bacterial illnesses like Vibro um, paramyliticus or Vibro vulnificus because of the contaminated water that the fish were, uh, the shellfish were grown in, um, you know, norovirus, hepatitis A virus, all these different things, shellfish poisonings, uh, paralytic shellfish poisoning, amnesic shellfish poisoning, neurotoxic shellfish poisoning, diuretic shellfish poisoning, any of these things you can trace back to the source. 
So that's the purpose. This is why we have shell stock identification tags and we purchase all of our um, shellfish and fish from approved sources that we can track back to. And now finally under receiving number seven, how do they maintain certification records for fish that must be frozen to destroy parasites as specified in the food code? So we have anisakiasis, which is that little worm, you know, if you eat the fish and then you get a little tickle in your throat and then you <coughs> cough up worms, or if you swallow, it goes down into your gut, gives you cramps and you're just not feeling good for a while. Um, we're the wrong animal for that anisakiasis, that worm, um, to stay with. So it'll stay with us for a while. I have a great video that I found. It's on one of the doctor websites but it's the endoscopic so the the doctor is actually going down with a pair of pincers and a and a camera down the restaurant owner's throat and this is probably i don't know 15 year ago um video but it shows it's going down the throat down down the throat and finally it comes up and it finds this little worm just wiggling away in there and and the uh the, uh, the person is not feeling well because this thing is in there. So then the doctor grabs it and pulls it all the way back out. It's kind of a fun video for, uh, for me. Anyway, okay, I'm going to pause this. This is uh, Annex 4, Food Safety Questions. Cold storage and cold holding. So the questions here, another seven questions, just like... Uh, just like above was receiving here it's cold storage and cold holding one how do they monitor the refrigeration units to ensure that they are maintaining proper temperature number two is there date marking procedures uh, is the date marking procedures are they acceptable are, are they properly date marking products as they go in and are stored uh, number three how do their employees know what food is to be used first. So FIFO, first in, first out. So there has to be that stock rotation, that method of stock rotation, and it's proper training, and it's everybody paying attention. So when you get the things in the door, when you receive them, you take that Sharpie, because it's part of your uh, uniform, and you mark the dates, right? And then you rotate. So when you put it away immediately or very quickly after you receive it, you move the old stuff forward, you put the new stuff behind, and that way we're using the oldest um, inventory first. It's money on the shelf, so you don't want to over order. You have to really gauge your operation. Okay, number four. Are there storage practices for RTE, which means ready to eat foods, and are there storage practices for raw food acceptable? So in other words, they're asking the operation, how is their storage practices for the ready to eat food? they keep it separate or and above any raw food so that if there was any dripping or cross-contamination it wouldn't get onto the ready-to-eat food like uh, a bag of lettuce the bag of lettuce is a ready-to-eat food and it should be above or completely separate on a different shelf from the raw dripping chicken or the raw dripping meat okay so the question that the health inspectors are going to ask are about the practices for storing these various food items. Number five, where are their thermometers stored? Are they calibrated? How often? So here for me, for the Coast Guard Center, we, the students come in the door, they immediately calibrate the thermometers, they wash them, they put them back into their uh, uh, 
sleeves, right? It, it's a it's a plastic sleeve. The thermometer goes in there for storage, kind of like a sheath for a for a sword or a knife, and then it goes in their pocket. And so when they're inspected, right, they have to line up and they're inspected by their supervisors. Supervisors pull their thermometers. They open them up. I mean, they pull them apart. They look to make sure they're clean and uh, calibrated, and then they give it back to them. So are this, uh, where are the thermometers stored? So each individual person has their own thermometer. Are they calibrated every single morning? And then if there's big temperature changes, so if you dip into the deep fat fryer at 400 degrees and you go into a piece of uh, raw chicken at 41 degrees, that's a big variation. So whenever you go through big variations um, or you drop the thing or you bump it, then you want to recalibrate it just to make sure that it's actually within acceptable parameters, which is 2 degrees Fahrenheit, 1 degree Celsius for the internal probe thermometer. And the thermometers, how often are they calibrated? Uh, every morning or when things happen and you have to recalibrate it. Number six, what kind of monitoring procedures do they implement for ensuring food is at the proper cold holding temperature? So this I said in the other podcast that each operation should have sous chef or lead line cook or somebody assigned to every couple of hours, take the clipboard, take the thermometer, go into the walk-in refrigerator, go into the refrigeration storage and randomly sample various uh, products just to make sure that the refrigerator itself is keeping all the food below 41 degrees. Okay, so this is monitoring procedures. Um, and with with active managerial control, we do it and we don't usually keep records. We're just actively managing and controlling uh, the risks and hazards in the flow of food. If we were doing HACCP, hazard analysis and critical control point program, then it would be a written policy procedure with clipboards and logs that you would have to actually write down. So every two hours, sous chef goes in, grabs a clipboard, writes down his time and temperatures as he monitors, uh, variously monitors uh, the products within the refrigerator. So it depends on which mm, system you are using. And finally, number seven, do they keep temperature logs? Okay, and it says here in parentheses, not required in most cases. So if we're doing active managerial control, it's not really required, but it all depends. If we, if you guys have a variance for whatever reason, so in, in bacterial growth, um, and if you're going to use acid, oxygen, and moisture, so fat tom, right? Food, acid, time, temperature, oxygen, moisture. Time and temperature are the easiest ones to control. But if you choose to, because you're a chef and you want to do fancy things, if you want to do and manipulate acid, oxygen, or moisture, then you have to actually keep records. You have to prove it to the health department. If you're going to fool around with oxygen, if you're going to do sous vide or uh, some other oxygen um, for preservation, and then smoking and curing, so that's uh, if you do acid oxygen or moisture and you manipulate those things you have to get you have to make a plan you have to turn it into the health department they have to kind of know that you're doing it and especially here in california if you're going to do sous vide if you're going to work with oxygen you have to actually make the plan the HACCP plan send it up to the health department for california not just the local health department but actually california health department you know department of public health they have to approve it before you can actually move forward with it so if you are working sous vide and you're doing these different things 
um, and the question was temperature logs and now I'm going off on a tangent but if your inspector walks in and they notice you have machines and bags and all that stuff and you know have no plan then they can tag out your equipment and if you use it after they tag it out then you can get you know fines and be in big trouble so because of listeria and because of botulism they want to know that you know what the hell you're doing when it comes to oxygen and so there's time frames and temperatures that you have to control and keep logs on um, to prove that you're doing the right thing and and with that how do they monitor the refrigeration units well there's um, there's different systems now you can just send the chef, the sous chef in there with a temperature gauge or whatever but you can also have what's called data loggers and they're in the refrigeration and they're hooked up to the computer system so it's continuously feeding the temperatures of the dish uh, of the uh, refrigerators into the computer system and so if there's ever a point when anybody has a question you just log into the computer pull up the uh, graph and it shows um, up to the minute data logging the logging of the information of the temperature within those uh, refrigeration and freezer units so that's kind of a neat thing okay pause for a second so now in the flow of food we have preparation and here we have eight questions what steps do they use to prevent cross-contamination um, what training is given for hand washing number three is what is their hand washing policy Number four, how do they clean and sanitize their equipment? Number five, how do their employees eliminate bare hand contact with ready to eat food? Number six, how do their employees minimize bare hand contact with food that is not ready to eat, like raw meats? Okay. Uh, and number seven, how do they process fruits and vegetables before service? And finally, number eight, do they serve a highly susceptible population? Like if you work in a nursing home or a hospital, you're working with high-risk populations um, or a daycare center or somebody, you know, uh, those type of areas. So what steps do they use to prevent cross-contamination? Well, there's probably procedural and physical barriers. So procedural is between things. So when you come in in the morning and you're going to use a particular workstation, a table, you're going to wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry that table first. But before you do that, you have to make sure you set up your two-pan, right? So you have your wash water with soap, detergent, and water. Then you have a rinse, either a hose or you have a white bucket. Uh, the first bucket is usually green. That's what we have. And then we have a red bucket for sanitizer, which you can use chlorine, iodine, or quats, which is quaternary ammonium compound. So the table won't fit in a three-compartment sink the table will not fit in a dishwashing machine. So you have to wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry it in its stationary position. So the answer to everything, if we have a plate, a dish, a thermometer, a knife, um, a cutting board, before we can use it for something new, we have to wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry it. So that's the answer all the way around. But before you do those things, you have to make sure that the, the solution is new and fresh or at least it's it's good um, in the three compartment sink we have to clean and sanitize all the the sinks first who knows who was there last night you know cockroaches and rodents and who knows what else is crawling around on that stuff overnight while we're not there 
So hopefully we don't have that situation, but many times we do. So the thing is, is you come in and you trust but verify and you actually fill up your two pan system, your green bucket with soapy water, your red bucket with sanitizer, and then you wipe everything down before you start work. Okay. So this is the steps do they use in preventing cross-contamination by being proactive and paying attention. So you teach and train your people to do it, and then you verify that they are doing it. So you monitor your people to make sure that they're uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing. Number two, what training is given for hand washing? It should be a, a demonstration model, right? The manager teaches and trains the people uh, how to wash their hands. And, you know, the, the warm water, get soapy water, uh, scrub in between the fingers, under the nails, the thumb, the back, all the way up the arms a little bit, okay? Depending on how long your sleeves are. Chef coats, we have uh, long sleeves that come down to our wrists. So we wash up as, as best we can all the way. And, you know, you're scrubbing for a long time and then you're, you're washing. So the washing time, you sing happy birthday in your head two times or, you know, some other song that you like. But the point is, is to get that lather going because the soap is a surfactant and it grabs on to the bits and pieces and it grabs onto any oils. And then when you rinse, so you get all that lather from the soap, then when you rinse, all that stuff is being held onto by the soap and then it rinses down the drain or rinses off. So that's what we want to do. We want to wash and rinse our hands for a lot of reasons because hands are the, really the biggest vehicle of contamination. We touch everything. We touch money, we touch doorknobs, we touch knives, we touch raw meat, we touch fresh things, we scratch our head, we, we you know, all kind of things. And we don't think about it. And the reality is, is that your hands you know, you touch everything and then, oh, okay, well, I'll wash my hands. I'll put on some gloves and then you start scratching and touching things again. And now the gloves are just as bad. So the question here is about the hand washing. Make sure you're washing your hands and do it well and do it often. Every time you change from one job to another or you touch something dirty, go wash your hands. Okay. What is the hand washing policy? So it should be a written policy and above each sink, it should say, if you do this, this, and this, you have to wash your hands before going back to work. You need to wash your hands. So in Oregon state, from my understanding, their law is that people use the restroom, you do your thing, then you wash your hands in the restroom. Then you come back into the kitchen and you go straight to the hand washing sink and you wash your hands again. So that's the one that I like. You know, in California, I don't know that we have that um, requirement, but it's a good one. And so, um, you know, it depends on policy. So you make the policy. Is that your thing? And I think it's a good one because when you maybe open the door again, you, you know, you don't know. Plus, it's a perception thing. So when customers are watching you, if you're not washing your hands after you come back from the toilet, then they get a bad impression. And so one of the things when I had my deli, I had my people, anytime they came back into the, to the work area, they went straight to the sink. And there was a line of people by the cash register. And you look up and you say, I'll be right with you. I'm washing my hands. And, oh, they loved it. Okay. So we, we do it and we do it way out in the open and we do it well so that they can see that we're, we're properly trained. Okay. Um, question four, how do they clean and sanitize their equipment? Well, like I said before, they wash and then they rinse and then they sanitize. So there should be an SOP or a policy for cleaning and sanitizing equipment also. So there's cleaning place equipment like 
um, yogurt machines and ice cream machines that have tubes and everything on the guts on the inside and you have to properly clean off clean all those so you have your user owner's manual and the owner's manual will have the directions on cleaning and sanitizing the inside gut stuff then we have our non-movable equipment like that table like a large tilt skillet or a steam jacket kettle which is like a big pot that won't move it's you know four feet high and three feet wide um, you're not going to pick it up so you have to clean it while it's stationary okay um, let's see how do employees eliminate bare hand contact with ready-to-eat food so that's a big thing in the stool sample right there's um, I shouldn't say that one of the instructors from FDA he was giving a presentation I think it was FDA anyway maybe a public health service but but you know he was doing on the whiteboard and he said this is what we call the stool sample and it had three legs he drew a little stool like three-legged stool and one leg was no bare hand contact with ready-to-eat foods one was hands as a vehicle of contamination and um, and then glove use was the third one I think and and so we have to pay attention we really have to keep feces away from food and so the big thing is is because uh, it's all that fecal oral route right and the feces gets out there and it can get onto everything so we wash our hands we glove up and then we have the procedures which with no bare hand contact so which we would hold uh, use tongs to hold the meat or we would use a carving fork to hold the meat and then a knife so we're not touching it at all with any bare hands number six how do employees minimize bare hand contact with food that is not ready to eat so when we're using uh when we're pulling apart uh frozen chicken and things like that so okay there's gloves um, that we can use and we can also use other barriers so we can use tools to help us uh, spatulas and things like that to move that raw food around because once you have raw food on your fingers who knows but then you're going to touch a doorknob you're going to open the refrigerator or the warming cabinet or something and you're going to touch something so you, then you're cross-contaminating all that raw bloody stuff onto these various handles so we want to prevent that as best as we can and we want to train our people have policies and it's it's that monitoring that management the PIC the person in charge has to be paying attention and watching and then when that person's gone there has to be another PIC there a person in charge Okay. All right. How do they process fruits and vegetables before service? So we have so many things going on with our fruits and vegetables. Um, lettuce right now coming out of, I mean, we have a huge recall. This is 2019. Um, this is uh, December already. But for the past month, we've had this uh, romaine, or longer, romaine hearts with uh, E. coli. And right now there's a big recall for, for, um, the romaine coming out of Salinas, California, which is in the Central Valley. Um, and, and so we have to, when we purchase, we get it from an approved source. The approved source, sometimes they wash it, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the pickers in the field just simply pick it off the ground. They cut it with their little snacker knife or whatever, and they pick it up and they strip off some outside leaves, and then they put it in a box. And they put like 12 heads of lettuce in a box and send it to us. And we wonder... Um, you know, we think, oh, okay, it's safe to work with. Well, maybe yes and maybe no. So in the fields, the workers are trained nowadays. They weren't for many years. Um, 
to when they had to go to the bathroom, they have to go and use the porta potty. And the porta potty actually has hand sinks now out in the fields. For years and years and years, there wasn't that. And anybody who had to take a dump, who had to go to the bathroom, they would just go three rows over and squat down in the field, you know, um, and and go right there. So the feces was there in the field. And then, you know, they have to clean up and then they go back to picking lettuce. So, you know, those are what was going on in the old days. Now proper training supposedly is happening. And so now we have porta potties within walking distance. We have hand wash stations. We have uh, cooling shelters to keep them out of the sun when they need to take a break. And they have drinking water so they can, you know, cool off. But it's hard, hard work for those folks out in the fields. And. Um, you know, there has to be a PIC out there too, to make sure that those people are doing the right thing. Because when the fruits and vegetables come to us in the restaurant, first it goes to the rest uh, the supply company, right? And then they hold it for a while and then it comes to us and then we get it and we hold it for who knows, you know, a few days, but what do we do when we prepare it? So question number seven is how do they process fruits and vegetables before service? Well, we have to wash it. So we have to pull things apart like celery. We have to knock off the bottom, pull it all apart, and then wash all those nooks and crannies with the romaine hearts. Same thing. Knock off the bottom, pull it apart, wash all the fruits and vegetables. Every time we wash, we're in a clean, sanitized food sink. So there's four different kinds of sinks. One of them is a food sink, and it has an air gap on the drain, so it would not allow any back a uh, flow of, of uh, sewage to come up into the sink if there were that kind of issue. Um, so it would, any water, any, any draining would fall away and it, it wouldn't get back. And before we actually do anything, we have to wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry the basin and send some sanitizer down the drain, right, to make sure everything is nice and clean. Then we let it air dry and then we fill it up with clean potable drinking water and then we break apart our romaine hearts and we we wash it in that water okay and then we can spin it out with a salad spinner and then we can store it in a refrigerator with wet pieces of paper towel over it to keep them nice and crisp and green if you're going to leave them as whole romaine pieces now if you're going to chop it up well wash it first spin it out or wash it chop it then spin it out so it's easier to spin out uh, but the point is is every time you're manipulating it, you can cross-contaminate onto it or wherever it came from may have been dirty. So we have to get rid of all that dirtiness first, wash it, rinse it, potable clean water, um, and then we store it properly in refrigeration, okay? Uh, tomatoes, cut melons, uh, I think it was in 2011, there was cantaloupe and a bunch of people died from eating the cantaloupe because the farm that it came from, those... The people who ran the farm, they're supposed to uh, have an amount of sanitizer in the water to float the melons in so it would kill whatever's on the outside of the melons, my understanding. And it wasn't at the proper ratio. So it, that takes me back. When we clean our tables, we wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry. How do I know the sanitizer's effectiveness? I use a, t a test strip to test the effectiveness of the sanitizer. Well, going back to the melons, that's how these folks, when you're a processor, when you do things for, and you're sending all this food all around the world or wherever you're going to send it, they have to have their procedures also, which is HACCP, right? Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point Systems, where they're keeping track and keeping records and actually testing that water to make sure it's at the right um, 
level of sanitizer. And it seems from my recollection, and this is years ago, almost 10 years ago, that the sanitizer or the amount of uh, chlorine in the water wasn't appropriate. And so Listeria wasn't killed off. So Listeria was on the melon or somehow maybe it cross-contaminated on, but I think it was all about the sanitizer uh, bath at the end. Um, so it's supposed to be on the outside and then in the process it dries off and everything is fine. Um, but in, in processing fruits and vegetables, we have to wash it, rinse it, store it properly, keep it um, protected before we serve it to the customer. Okay. And then finally, number eight in preparation, how do they serve uh, or do they serve a highly susceptible population? Like, do you work in a nursing home or a hospital? And if you do, then you have to be more strict because you have to be safer and cleaner and better. I mean, in restaurants, you need to be also. But when the inspector walks in the door, these are the inspector's guideline questions. And it makes them think about what they have to observe just based on these questions. So they're going to look around to see that everybody's doing the right thing um, throughout the whole flow of, of the operation. So now we go on to cooking. Um, these are the questions. Uh, number There's five questions. Number one, does the staff know the correct cooking temperatures? So if they're cooking hamburgers, you know, for a long time, and even though I was a cook and I've been cooking for years and years and years, when people would say, well, what temperature are you supposed to cook that to? And you say, well, I don't know. I'm going to medium rare. Well, medium rare is not safe. 155 degrees for 17 seconds is the answer. And, and you know, it was a little different before. And now the new 2017 food code, they're saying 155 degrees Fahrenheit for 17 seconds. So you cook the hamburger. Then you poke it with your thermometer and you leave it in. after it reaches 155, then the reading has to stay for at least 17 seconds at 155 or better. And if it goes better, then you know you're done. Um, do they have a consumer advisory? So this is a consumer risk advisory message. If you're going to serve rare or medium rare burgers on the bottom of the menu or somewhere, there's a sign for everyone to see. There should be a consumer risk advisory message saying... Dear customer, if you choose to eat undercooked or raw foods, you're taking your uh, health in your own hands. We will do it because we're providing this advisory. We're telling you that it may not be safe. We, we're telling you, you may get sick if you eat this rare burger, but because you want it, I'll give it to you. Okay. There was a time when we had to cook it all the way and then people would complain. So now, if we have a consumer risk advisory on the menu and everybody says, oh, okay, fine, then they can have whatever they want. Um, when it comes to children's menu items, they cannot have it undercooked, okay? So it needs to be, if it's from the children's menu, it, it needs to be cooked all the way to 155 or better. Um, are cooking temperatures monitored? So this is... When we're cooking chicken, I'm cooking 400 pieces of chicken at one time, and I'm using four ovens to do it on sheet pans, multi-racks, and then uh, different times. The thing is, is all these chicken, okay, figure their chicken quarters, the bottom, the leg and the thigh attached, right? There's a bone in, and they're big and fat, and some are bigger and fatter than others. Other ones are skinnier, so the skinnier ones are going to cook faster, but you have them all laid out. There's 20 on a pan or maybe 16 on a pan. You pull out the pan and you monitor. You actually pull out your thermometer 
and you poke into the fattest part, you stay away from the bone, and do it in a couple different places on each piece of chicken. And our um, policy and our technique is that we are actually temperaturing every single piece of chicken just to make sure, because we don't want any raw chicken going out. All right. So if we're running with uh, street HACCP or, or, or um, retail HACCP, which is basically paying attention, um, you can, if you had all chicken breasts, okay, chicken breasts are going to be easier. They'll cook for in 25 minutes and it'll be 165 degrees instantaneous. That's great. So if you have 25 chicken breasts on a sheet pan and you cook them and you pull the sheet pan out and you poke three or four, it stands to reason the other ones, if the same size, are all done also. So then you're done. But with those chicken quarters, the ones with the bones and the thigh and the leg all together, uh, you know, they're bigger and they're fatter and there's more problems there. So we go and we actually check those. We monitor those more closely. Yes, we monitor everything, but we're monitoring those guys more closely. So number three was, are cooking temperatures monitored? And the answer is, yeah, they should be. And making sure we're hitting proper temperatures. Um, so I'll go over the temperatures, um, the four different temperatures. So for all poultry, including chicken, turkey, duck, squab, pheasant, all the birds. Yes, duck. I said duck. I know all you chefs are saying, hey, duck needs to be, you know, medium rare. Yeah, okay. That's where that consumer risk advisory message comes back in. So all the poultry is supposed to be 165 for instantaneous. For many years, it was 165 for 15 seconds. Now, with the 2017 food code, they're allowing 165 degrees Fahrenheit instantaneous. So if you poke your thermometer in there and it hits 165, you're done. Okay, you don't have to hold it there for 15 seconds. For ground meat, flavor-injected meat, um, and fish, so it'd be beef, pork, lamb, bison, fish, you know, any of those things that are from an approved reputable source um, that's uh, um, inspected already. So those kind of meats we cook. And if they're ground minced or chopped, right, or if they're flavor injected or they're mechanically tenderized with a jacquard, right, a pokey jacquard that pokes through the meat to make it tenderized. So the bacteria is on the surface of the meat. And when it's on the surface, like a regular normal piece of steak, that'd be 145 degrees. But once you jacquard it or you mince it, chop it, grind it up, now the bacteria is all mixed up. So now we go to 155 degrees, and the new time is uh, for 17 seconds. So for poultry, 165 instantaneous. For ground mince chopped and jacquarded, 155 for 17 seconds. For whole pieces of meat, like a steak or a pork chop, or a piece of fish that's whole, uh, 145 for 15 seconds. And then for vegetables, for hot holding. So if you're going to uh, cook some vegetables and put it on a steam line for self-service or for, for cafeteria-style service, it's supposed to go to 135. Okay, And then it'll hold at 135 on the steam line or better. Okay, so that's those four temperatures. Um, and are cooking temperature logs maintained? So it's not required normally. But if you're working HACCP and you have to prove it, then you have the logs and you actually take times and temperatures and write it down on the clipboard. So that all depends. Okay, cooling. 
cooling, five questions on cooling. How is food cooled? How are temperatures monitored? Uh, number three, how do they ensure that the prescribed time frames are met? What corrective actions do they take if the time frames are not met? And are cooling records maintained? And that's not required if you're not doing HACCP. But if you're doing HACCP or you're doing record keeping, then you want to keep and maintain your records so you can be inspected. So how is food cooled? So divide and conquer. If we have large, like if we have a big prime rib and it's the end of the day and we need to cool it off because we don't want to throw it away because it's so expensive, but tomorrow we can have steak and eggs. So one of the techniques is to actually, normally during service, we keep it in a alto sham so it's a warmer or a warming cabinet and it stays at 135 degrees right above 135 so no new bacteria is going to grow and it stays at beautiful medium rare um, for service so at the end of the day we're going to get ready and go home we can actually cut it into steaks lay the steaks out on a sheet pan and put it you know cool them off let them cool before when they stop steaming then we can get them in the fridge overnight um, so dividing and conquering large pieces like that. Now, if I have a big uh, uh, pot of soup, I'll divide it into multiple smaller ones, and then I'll put those in an ice bath. So I'll fill up a sink with icy water. So ice water, at you know, when there's full of ice, that's 32 degrees. Then you put the small pot of soup into the ice bath, and then you stir it. And the ice around the outside is cooling it and then as you stir it it releases the heat from the top then we can also do a, a ice paddle or an ice wand so these are pieces of equipment that you you purchase and it's um, it's a hollow wand we fill with water we close the top put it in the freezer it turns into a block of ice kind of like if you had a water bottle a little drinking water bottle and you put it in the freezer it would turn into a block of ice and then you would float that so that's the home style thing where you float that into your hot Right? But you got to make sure that the outside is clean and sanitized before you introduce it into your um, pot of soup or whatever you're trying to cool down. So be careful what you're doing. Make sure everything is clean and sanitized before you introduce it in there, especially your hands, but all the equipment as well. So divide and conquer. Make big things smaller. Make big pots of liquid smaller. Divide it out. Um, I use a, um, a method where... I get a, a hotel pan, a full medium, which is a four inch hotel pan. Then I'll get a perforated two inch hotel pan and I'll put it there. Then I'll put ice in that perf pan. Okay. So then I get my hot food in another full medium or four inch hotel pan. Uh, let's say it's chili or let's say it's uh, marinara sauce. And I'll put that on top of the ice. That way the ice is always 100% touching the bottom of the food pan, okay? If instead you only put ice into a hotel pan and then you put this on top of it, the ice is going to melt and then pretty soon there's going to be a gap of air between the top of the ice and the bottom of the food pan. So when I do it, I use the perforated pan to hold the ice all the way up touching the bottom of the food pan. And when the, that ice melts, it drips down into the other hotel pan, so you're controlling your mess. Okay. Then I take another hotel pan, like a half medium, which would be a, a half size, four inch hotel pan, and I'll fill that full of ice, and then I'll put it inside 
the liquid, the chili or the or the uh, marinara sauce or whatever I'm cooling. It's kind of like that stir stick or the or the ice wand. Same concept. It's just a different technique. You get the ice inside in the middle. So now you have ice from the bottom, from the perforated pan, and then you have ice in the in the top, actually squished down, in this deep. Um, or four inch uh, hotel pan, um, half pan, and that way it helps to cool. And then you stir the stuff. So how are temperatures monitored? How is the food cooled? So we're cooling it using these different techniques, and then we're actually poking it with a thermometer to make sure that we're monitoring the temperatures. And how do we ensure that the time frames are met? So what I do is I tear a piece of uh, uh, paper towel, and I write a little cross in it, a little X, and in each four quadrant, I say what the food is, marinara sauce, who I am, Mr. F, the time that I started, and the date, so December 6th, 2019, and then the time that I started was 12 o'clock noon, and the temperature I began, 140 degrees plus. Then I'm cooling it using the ice on the bottom, ice on the top, and anybody who walks up has all the information they need. They know when I started, what the temperature was to start. So all they have to do is pull out their thermometer and they can poke it to see where I am too. And then of course I'm coming back to babysit it. So usually I don't let anybody mess with my stuff. Um, but if I were to have to go home for whatever reason, they know all my information and then they can pick up from there. Okay. Once it stops steaming, then we'll get it into the walk-in refrigerator. But I don't ever... I try real hard not to get any steam into the freezer or the refrigerator because the steam goes up into the condensers of the machines and it jacks everything up. If it goes into the freezers, it'll create an ice sheet on the fins in the back of the breathing unit on the, on the condensers. And then the machine won't breathe anymore because now it has ice all built up in there. So whenever you have steam going in a freezer, uh, it, it screws things up. So don't do it. Plus all that heat. These machines, refrigerators and freezers, are not made to cool foods down. They are made to hold cold or frozen foods. Blast chillers or other machines, those are the ones that are made to cool things down. They blow cold air across hot foods and they do it on purpose and that's what their intention and that's what, what they're made for. But normal refrigerators and normal freezers are not made for it. So we always cool it down outside the machines first as best we can until there's no more steam. Then we cover our product and vent the corner and then put it into the walk-in refrigerator or the freezer and allow them to help us cool it down once there's no more steam going. So basically I try to get it to 70 degrees within two hours because that's the time frame. You have a six-hour total time frame. You have to get the hot food from 135 degrees down to 70 degrees within two hours. And then you have another four hours to go from 70 degrees Fahrenheit to 41 degrees. So that's a total of four hours on the bottom side, two hours on the top. So it's a six hour total time frame. With my technique of the ice bath with the, um, the ice in the perf pan and the ice in the top pan, I can get it done in like an hour or less, right? getting it to 70 degrees, depending on what it is. And then I have to stir it every once in a while and move it around to release any heat that's in the middle. Then I put the ice back in and I add more ice if I need it. 
Okay, so I'm always consciously and purposefully uh, babysitting the food. Okay, if I want to keep it, I want it to be right. So this is what I do. And, and uh, you know, then I get it cold. Then I wrap it so nobody will cough or sneeze or throw something in it. I label it. I put it in the fridge. It's going to be there over 24 hours. It needs to be labeled so everybody knows what it is the next morning when they walk in the door. Um, so that is cooling. Corrective actions. What corrective actions do they take if the time frames are not met? So if you're cooling it and you can't get it down to 70 within the two hours, then you have to actually get it back in the pot, warm it back up to 165 within two hours really quickly, and then start cooling it again. If you want to save it, the proper way to do that and this question in cooling is what corrective action. So corrective action is stop, reheat it all the way to 165 to kill off anything that potentially grew, and then start your cooling process again. Maybe you have to babysit it more. Maybe you need more ice. Maybe you need to divide it into smaller portions than you divided it into the first time. Okay. And finally, uh, are cooling records maintained? And like I said, if you're a record-keeping company, then you keep your records. And if you're not, then you don't. Okay. Reheating. Here we go. What happens to leftovers? Well, if they're cooled down properly, then we can hold them and we can use them for tomorrow. What are food products? I'm sorry. How are food products reheated? Stove, oven, microwave, steam table, other. So remember, we never, ever, ever use a steam table to warm up or reheat our foods. Okay. If it's going to be hitting a steam line for hot holding we have to put it on fire first we have to get it in the oven or we have to put it on fire and warm it back up to 165 within two hours before we put it out for service so you might warm it up in one pot get it to 165 then pour it into another container and put it out on the steam line for for service okay so the questions here for the health inspector are what happens to the leftovers and then how are the food products reheated either in the stove, microwave, steam table, or some other way. How are temperatures monitored? And here we go back to the thermometer and actually a calibrated thermometer, poking the things to make sure that we have a start temperature and an end temperature, and we're looking within the two-hour time frame of reheating. Okay, Are reheating records maintained? So if we're a record-keeping company, we do. And if we're not, we don't, but we pay attention. And what corrective actions are taken? Number five is what corrective actions are taken. So if it doesn't get to the right temperature within the right time frame, we're supposed to throw it out. Okay? So we want to do it as quick as possible. We can't just take the food, put it in a pot, you know, um, a, a hot holding pattern, and turn it on like the, the soup warmer. That's only meant to hold it, right? It's not meant to heat it up quickly, and we have to heat it up quickly. Um, within two hours. So that's the reheating portion. Six questions. How are cooked foods held until service? How is temperature controlled, either with a steam table, a stove or oven, a hot box, or some other technique? How are the temperatures monitored? How are temperature records maintained, if required? What corrective actions are taken when food is found out of temperature? 
is temperature maintaining is temperature maintained during distribution if food is transported off-site okay so how are cooked foods held for service so just like everything else the temperature danger zone is between 41 degrees and 135 degrees Fahrenheit okay and so all of our hot holding pattern needs to be at 135 degrees or higher some people will use an oven and turn an oven to a lower temperature right you're cooking things at 350 degrees or whatever and then you have another oven completely separate that's set at maybe 200 degrees that way once you pull the chicken out and you temperature it from the first oven that's cooking and you make your 165 degrees and you know it's good then you take that meat and you put it into this other oven which is at 200 degrees and you put it in there or you know somewhere in that neighborhood and that way the meat stays warm without you know overcooking so we we try and use it fast we have holding cabinets at the station and they're set at about 160 degrees 170 degrees they only need to really hold at 135 or higher that's the answer 135 or higher but in reality we kind of manipulate these temperatures as best we can just to keep the things hot so long as it's over 135 we cook things properly the first time then we put them in these hot holding patterns to keep them above 135 so that no new bacteria will grow and they can stay that way for ever quality will go down but they can stay in there forever because no new bacteria is going to grow okay so we killed off anything that potentially was going to and now we're preventing anything and we're keeping it safe in the hot holding pattern so that's the hot holding pattern and it's untimed so long as it's over 135 degrees how is temperature controlled uh, steam table we set those stoves ovens hot boxes um, some places will try and just use insulated boxes and then we go into time as a public health control which is the next set of questions so I'll get to that later um, how are temperatures monitored using a thermometer so every if we have food that's sitting out for four hours we're supposed to temperature it at least every four hours and if it's out of temperature we throw it away if um, if we you know like we we're only open for an hour and a half so we put food out in small batches and it goes away within 30 seconds to you know two minutes because we're hammered you know people are coming in uh, it's it's a, a, a military cafeteria style so we have all the food ready it's all in the warming cabinets it's being cooked progressively so it's nice and fresh and we get it into the warming and so when the watch captain needs it all he has to do is turn around open the door grab a new pan of spinach or a new pan of chicken or whatever and because it's all cooked and it's all in this warming cabinet and then he can put it on the line and there's 50 or 60 people in this line you know at one time and they go through and so all the food goes away really quickly we don't have to worry about the monitoring of temperatures um, for long periods of time but some people do and especially when they're traveling from here to there so number six question is is temperature maintained during distribution of food if transport if transported off-site so if you're doing catering this is a big thing you have to make your temperature in the oven right you have to cook it all the way 
165 degrees instantaneous for chicken. Then you have to pan it up. You have to cover it. Then you have to put it in an insulated travel container that's going to try and keep the temperature at above 135 or higher for a longer period of time. And then it goes into your van, which is a cleaned van, right? It should be clean and not all full of junk and stuff and critters. Um, and then you travel from here to your destination. You drop off the food to your team members on the other end and there should be a label saying you know the time that it came out of hot the temperature it came out of you know the cooking uh, the oven uh, what it is who you are so all the information is on this label and then that way they know what they have to do with it on their end okay because they they have the same training so they know that if it's coming in it needs to be above 135 the whole travel time and if it's not, then it, it turns into time as a public health control, which is coming up in the next section. All right. And corrective actions. If yeah, I've already gone over that, we check it every four hours. If it's not there, throw it away. As an uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we check it sooner. We check it after an hour or, or whatever, and then we can have corrective actions. If it's not at the right temperature, then we can cook it all the way back up to 165 and then bring it back down again so um, we go through our stuff so fast that it doesn't matter all right time alone is a public health control so time is a public health control this is a big one for caterers um, and, and people who are moving food around. So time alone. How long is a potentially hazardous food being held out of temperature before or after cooking? So if it's cold food, um, a couple different ways. Let me read all the questions. There's four questions. How long is PHF, or the new term is TCS food, being held out of temperature before or after cooking? Number two, how is the time out of temperature controlled? Number three, how is time monitored? And number four, how are time records maintained as specified in food code? So this is what we call time as a public health control. And so we put a label on the food. So remember I said the temperature danger zone is from uh, 135 degrees Fahrenheit to 41 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so 135 and better is good and 41 degrees and lower is good. All right, and in the middle is what we call the temperature danger zone. Now, in that temperature danger zone, there's another range from 70 to 125-ish that the bacteria, if they're there, are really happy and they'll grow and thrive. Okay, yeah, they grow that little 10 degrees above and the, the 30 degrees under, but from the 70 to 125 is where they really thrive. So that helps us with this time as a public health control. If I take a lasagna, say, and we cook the lasagna or we cook the chicken, right, 165, because lasagna is a stuffed food, basically. Um, so when we have stuffing or stuffed food or microwave, we'll have to go to 165. Okay, so lasagna, I cook it to at least 165 degrees. It comes out of the oven. It's hot, brown, and bubbly, and it looks beautiful. And then I let it rest for a while, and it's going to stay hot for quite a while. But all the cheese is going to settle back in, and then when you cut it, it stays as blocks. If you cut it immediately after coming out of the oven, it's going to bleed out because the, the cheese hasn't tightened up yet. Anyway, so we cook the food 165, 
And now I'm going to put it on the picnic table out in the, in the yard here. I'm just going to take it out of the oven and put it out in the yard. How long can it sit out there? It can stay there for up to four hours and we can still eat it. There's no temperature control. Remember everything else before had hot holding or cold holding? This, it's sitting out on a table. So, so long as I have a label on it and proper training to my staff, and protection from the elements, right? No birds are going to poop on it. Nobody's going to cough on it. So we have to protect it. But it can sit there for up to four hours and still be served. But at the end of the four hours, it has to be either eaten or or thrown away. Okay. Um, now, if and because it's coming down from 135 through that rapid growth area. But it really doesn't matter. So we have four hours because if I do a graph on here, I'll call it the bacterial growth curve. So you have your X and Y axis. And then when some bacteria gets contaminated onto a food, there's a time where it's um, getting its footing. It's getting ready to do something. So it's the lag. It's kind of lagging. It's just kind of sitting there for a minute. Then it's happy and now it's going to start to grow and they grow every you know they double every 15 or 20 minutes depending on the bacteria and the temperature so if the bacteria is there it's going to grow and grow so 2 4 8 16 32 you know all within minutes and within an hour there's a lot so we have what they allow us is the 4 hour time frame cuz that's when the bacteria gets potentially to the um, log phase where the bacteria is actually going to take off and grow so the lag phase it's kind of settling and it's growing a little bit if it's there but then pretty soon it'll get to a point after four hours where it's just going to take off and grow 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 then it gets up to the stationary phase where it's being consumed and it's also dying off at the same time and and um, then there's the decline or the death phase, and that's where a lot of bacteria, some bacteria, they'll die off, and then their waste becomes toxic, and they become poisonous. So, And that's a few hours from now. But the answer in our system is four hours. So food can sit out on that picnic table, and that lasagna or that chicken can sit out there for up to four hours and be sold or eaten. But anything after that, we need to throw it away okay? because of the bacterial growth curve if the bacteria get there so our policies our procedures our training it's all about that four hours we work within the four hours and after four hours it's trash okay now the other one if it's cold food remember I said it's 135 degrees to 41 degrees is the temperature danger zone and the bacteria thrive between 70 and 125 so from 41 to 70 the bacteria, yeah, they're still growing, but they're growing slower because it's colder. So they're not growing as fast. So time is a public health control is that you mark your potato salad and it can sit out on the picnic table next to the lasagna and it can be there for up to six hours with no temperature, no ice, no refrigerator, whatever. We're still keeping it protected from the birds and people coughing on it and all that stuff. But it can sit up there for up to six hours so long as I have it labeled, proper training, and a written procedure saying that I know what the heck I'm doing for up to six hours because it's staying below 70 degrees. 
if it ever goes above 70 degrees, then automatically it reverts back to the four hour time frame and then you have to throw it away. It has to either be eaten or thrown away six hours so long as it always stays below 70 degrees. And how do you monitor it? Well, that's this. Number three is how is time monitored with a watch, right? And the label and you mark the name of the food, potato salad, your name, Jeff, so that everybody knows who to come and talk to. The time that you took it out of refrigeration, which is at noon, and the time it has to be eaten up or, or thrown away, which would be six hours later. And then for me, I write a little 70 there and I circle it and it reminds everybody that it has to stay below 70 degrees. Okay. And now this label doesn't have to be in view of all the customers or the clients or whatever. It can be underneath on the bottom of the pan. But if an inspector walks up, you can prove and you can show that you know what the heck you're doing. And how are time records maintained? You have the clipboard, you take your times, and you have it hanging in your van. And that way, if there's ever any question, you have the policy there, you have the record keeping there, you have the label on the bottom of the pans, all proving that you know what you're talking about using time as a public health control. Okay. Okay, so that's the Annex 4 food safety questions. Uh, it says... In order to assure yourself that you are conducting comprehensive risk-based inspections, you may want to ask yourself the following sample list of questions before leaving the establishments that you're inspecting. This list addresses the significant food safety concerns for each operational step in the flow of food through the establishments. This sample list can be used as a tool to help you focus your inspections on assessing the active managerial control of foodborne risk factors, assessments of whether establishments are actively monitoring critical processes is especially important in your assessment of establishments of the establishment's active managerial control of foodborne illness risk factors. Note that the list is not intended to be a questionnaire for operators, but rather a tool to help you remember what you're looking for, the critical processes to evaluate during your inspection. So these are for the health inspector. And so I'm telling you guys what they're looking for. And so in order for you to get a clean bill of health from your health inspector, you should be doing this too. You should have your own check sheet. You should have your own training. And on my website, I have all the SOPs. It's on that link, uh, the resource link. And then you go to uh, the Alaska link and all the SOPs are there. All you have to do is Open it, print them out, tweak them or download them to your computer, tweak them um, to your specific operation because every operation is different and you want it to be reflective of your operation. Don't just print it out and say, oh, here we go. You actually have to read it. You have to evaluate it. You need to tweak it. So you should have all your leaders, you know, sit at a meeting and talk about it and, and come up with ideas and, and make these things your own. You know, they put these things up there to try to help and now you need to take it and run with it. All right. Um, thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. I'm going to clean up this audio and put it out. Take care and have a good holiday season. Um, it's coming up on uh, the holidays here and New Year's in uh, about three weeks. Okay. Take care.